Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So I have this um, journal here. I have probably 75 or 80 of these ever since I came to know Christ. I started keeping a a journal. Uh, And I keep these, I think, partly because I like to see my own progress in the faith. I also like to document what I'm seeing God do around me. And so this is is my journal from 1994. I was entering my senior year of college at Perry College, and God was doing a lot of work. And... uh, see here on the front, I had these little pithy quotes that kind of kept me going. Lukewarm is too cold for God. That was one pithy saying. Don't be average. It's big right there. Don't be a situational Christian. Those are, that's what God was doing in my life. And I kind of I was reading through some of this this morning. I kind of shudder to think, wow, I used to think that. Um, oh, wow, I really thank God come a long way. Uh, praise him. So you, you get to document a little bit of your maturity uh, that's there. So uh, if you don't have a habit of journaling, at least just take that as a, an encouragement to maybe start. But as I, as I thought about this message, I remember a very distinct moment in this time of my life where there were slant, uh, lines in the sand being drawn, a sort of burn the ships type moment. And on May 23rd, as was my custom and, and still is to this day, 27 years later, is I was journaling. So on May 23rd, I woke up, and this is what I wrote. God has revealed to me and basically said, Will, remember the patience I had with you and have patience with Scotty. Scotty was my roommate. And uh, I was a new Christian, and Scotty and Most of my friends were not there yet. And at 3.30 a.m., you can see it right here, I have a new journal entry (laughs) about Scotty. Something happened between the morning morning devotional and 3.30 a.m. Here's what happened. We lived in an apartment, and I went to bed about midnight, and uh, the the window in my apartment room, Scotty and I shared a, a room together, was cracked, and I and down at the, the deck at our apartment was where we used to hang out and drink and smoke weed and, and all those great college things. And I overheard all my friends discussing me. I was the topic of their hour-long bashing of all things religious and will. And it was hard. It was really hard. I love these guys. I still do. I'm still friends with them. You'll hear about that in a second. But... But it was hard to hear them talk about my new faith, my new uh, 
journey in Christ, and they were, they were ridiculing me pretty aggressively. So I rolled over and went to bed about midnight. Later that evening, early morning, Scotty stumbles up the steps, and he is so drunk, he's vomiting on the steps. He crawls in his bed, and he's vomiting up against the wall of his bed, and it's splashing back on his face. And I'm over here next to him. This is the guy that was just land-blasting me for an hour. I get out of bed, take off his clothes, I put him in the shower, I clean his sheets, I dress him. He's passed out. I put him in my bed. I go down to sleep on the couch. And at 3.30 a.m., I have another journal entry. I won't read you the whole one. It says, Scotty is so sick from drunkenness, and he has a severe problem. Lord, please deliver him from this addiction. Have mercy on his soul. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your love and compassion. And I remember saying, I won't go back. Whatever it might mean, I won't go back. Three years later, Scotty called me, and he said, Will, about three months ago, I gave my life to Christ, and I understand now what you went through. And God used both of those situations to say to me, Will, however hard it might get, whatever trial you might have to go through, I'll be there. Don't go back. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia here. So let's look at it. Let's take it in two chunks. Okay, I'm going to teach you the passage, and then I'm going to apply it. Okay? Let's look at verse 8 through 11, and let's understand what he's saying at the first. Because he's continuing what he talked about last week. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. He starts this section by saying formerly, which is a tremendous word to read as a Christian, which it implies and means there was something before you are now. Formerly, you were this way. There was something about these Galatians that was not true of them right then. Formerly. Friend, think about your former life. Think about where you were before God rescued you and praise him for his rescuing. Formerly, they were this way. And what he says is formerly, you had those elementary principles that you were trusting in and and acting as if they were gods, little g's, as if they could save you, those elementary principles that we talked about last week, earth, wind, fire, water, or the law, or just math and science and grades and money, all the just the things that make the world run, which are good things, but when you try to make them gods, they enslave you. Tim Keller says that idolatry is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate what the Galatians were doing. They were taking the elementary principles and making them gods. He says, formerly you did that, and then he says some great words, but now. Paul does this a lot in his writings. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now God has made you alive. You were this way, but now this. And what he says here in verse 9 and 10 is that you know God now, and more specifically, God knows you. 
One commentator said it this way, relationship with God does not have its basis in man's seeking, which is mysticism, or man's doing, which is legalism, or in man's knowing, which is Gnosticism. Relationship with God originates with God himself and is carried on always and forever by divine grace. This word here for knowing God, I don't want to be too inappropriate in a sermon, but the word carries with it vulnerable intimacy between a man and a woman. To know your wife. Genesis 4.1 says that Adam knew Eve and she gave birth to a son. Implicitly means that Adam knew more than her phone number or her ideogram type. <laughs> he knew her. And that's how God describes his relationship with his people. He knows you vulnerably, intimately. No shame. He knows you. And I've thought about this a lot. And there's a quote, another quote by Tim Keller, and this is what he says. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from our pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at you. You see what he's saying? If Mark says to me, I love you, but there's something about me I haven't told Mark and he doesn't know and I'm withholding, that love is superficial. On the flip side, if I take the risk and tell Mark everything I know, he might not love me. So I withhold. You see how we do in our relationships. It's not so with God. He knows you fully and loves you truly. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, when you guys understood that it's about Christ and you're in Christ, you were known by God. And if you come out from that, you come out from that intimate vulnerability knowledge and you subject yourself to the enslavement of gods who cannot possibly know and love you. Don't do that. Stay in Christ. That's his thing. And he, and he, and to, to make his point even more clear, he calls those elementary principles weak and worthless. You see that in the passage? And this is, this is an incredible literary teaching technique to use extreme words to try to draw you back to the reality you should stand in. These things that you are trusting in are weak and worthless. So what I do is I go to the extreme in my own mind when these things come. For example, you know, I, I grew up and this, you know, this, this, this journal is full of me taking Bible verses and journaling. And I had a goal to have a, a date by every day journal entry. I didn't want to miss a day because I was taught in some way reading your Bible every day is what a true Christian does. So, you know, and that starts working. Oh, I missed a day. Oh, does God really love me? I missed a week. Oh, I must not be a Christian. Oh, you know, this Bible reading becomes this, you know, this righteousness. Well, I started thinking, what do blind and illiterate people do? If, if the righteousness is to read your Bible every day, what does someone who can't read do? Whoa. The goal is to know God, not read your Bible every day. Now the playing field is level. Everybody, whether they can read and write, whether they are blind or can see, can know God. 
Why? Because the righteousness is in God and knowing him, not in your Bible reading. Here Paul uses a similar technique with weak and worthless. So when I read the word weak, he says these elementary principles are weak. I go into, well, what do I think is the most powerful thing on the planet? And for me, it's the U.S. military. I love the U.S. military. I love to hear the chopper sounds. I love to read special forces books. I love to carry challenge coins in my pocket. I love the U.S. military. I love First Blood and Rambo. I love Full Metal Jacket. I love Saving Private Ryan. I love Band of Brothers. That's me. I think, hooah, the U.S. military. And Paul would say, Will, it's weak. It's weak. Military power might be able to win you freedom to vote, freedom to worship, freedom to bear arms, freedom to own property, freedom to blank. It cannot earn you freedom with God. The only thing powerful enough to earn you freedom with God is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that military power, that whatever power, it's weak, he says. And then he says, not only is it weak, it's worthless. So then I run to, oh, money. The Hope Diamond today is priced at $250 million. If I had that, I could get my new Tacoma. I could put all four of my kids through college. I could buy my wife that new kitchen she wants. I could have the new grill deck that I want on the back of my thing. And on and on. And Paul says, Will, it's worthless. Financial security might be able to pay your kids college. It might be able to give you a boat for the weekend. It might be able to secure you an early retirement. It might be able to start a new company. But it cannot purchase freedom with God. Only the blood of Christ can purchase that. So he says, it's weak and it's worthless. Do not give yourself to them. Do not give yourself to any power. Do not give yourself to any prestige, treasure. There is one treasure, it's Jesus. If you make military power, financial security, physical health, education, parenting your treasure, then all of these things will eventually enslave you. And they're not God's. So he sums this whole section up by saying, you guys are even observing days and weeks and months and years. What? You're, you're Gentiles. You're not Jews. Why are you now following the Jewish cultural religious calendar? The reason? Because these Judaizers have enslaved you to their cultural way of life. I can't believe you guys. I fear that I've labored in vain because now you're even celebrating these Jewish cultures, cultural traditions. So he kind of wraps this section up by saying, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. And then he moves into this very revealing section of scripture. And I love it because we tend to forget that Galatians is not this theological treatise about justification by faith alone, though it's helpful in understanding that. It's a letter from a man to another group of humans at a specific location in history. This was a correspondence. This was a letter. And here we see the essence of that relationship. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God or as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose." 
They want to shut you out from me that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, guys, I came, I came to you, and the whole reason I came is because there was a physical ailment. We don't know what this ailment was. There might be a clue here that it had something to do with his eyes because he says the trial that I was going through was so great you would have gouged out your eyes for me. So some scholars think maybe he had an eye problem. Some think he may have had malaria or some other crippling disease. Regardless of what it is, it says I came to you as a weak man and you cared for me. There was a relationship and while I was with you, I told you the gospel of God. I told you that though I'm weak, he's strong. I told you about my experience that even though I might have all these great visions about God and do great things for God, the power lies in Christ alone. I told you about that in the posture of my weakness. And now have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? These guys are making much of you so that you'll make much of them? I didn't act that way with you. Why are you doing that? So he, he shifts his tone from this exhortation towards Christ, and he appeals now to his own personal relationship. And he says very pointedly, these Jewish leaders that are coming and twisting you and enslaving you are trying to make much of you. And I thought about this this week. Y'all may have seen the video that came out, uh, out in eastern Kentucky of the, there was a t-ball game between five and six-year-olds. And the parents went totally crazy because the five-year-old was tagged out at third. And they blew, like, I was taking his shirt off and they're fighting each other on the diamond. And I thought about this passage. Forgive me, it's kind of how small-brained I am. But the, here's a bunch of parents who are living out their glory days of baseball through their five-year-old so that the five-year-old will make much of them. So they make much of their five-year-old. And it didn't work out. And so they blow a gasket. But isn't that kind of how we are? That's what he's kind of saying is happening here. These Judaizers show up because they've got some things they want. I want to look good. I want to pad my thing. I want to show my Instagram trophy of my kid at five holding up a t-ball trophy. So I'm going to make much of him. So he'll make much of me. And then when it doesn't go my way, things change. That's exactly what is happening here. Paul says the only reason they're doing this is so they can make much of themselves. This is about them, not about Christ. And you're just their pawns in that. I'm in anguish for you. He's so, you've got to hear his pleas here. I feel like a woman who's about to give birth. That's the kind of pain I feel for you. I want Christ to be formed in you. So in summary, Paul is teaching, how could you guys turn back to those elementary enslaving principles, having tasted the grace of God in its most free form. I'm especially astonished that you are now turning away from me and all that we've been through together. I'm appealing to you, do not come out from under Christ because Christ is forming you into something special and powerful and he will make much of you so that you make much of him. That's his plea. Now let's apply this. Danielle and I have a, uh, a stepbrother, and uh, he's in uh, the railroad company. He works, he's an executive for Burlington Northern Railroad. And over the years, 
will, you know, as we've interacted over the years, I mean, this guy gets 570 emails a day. And it's not like from Walgreens and Snap Fitness. Like, he gets 570 emails about railroad business. And he talks about rail crashes, you know, train wrecks. And he has to fly in and he has to deal with the train wrecks and he has to figure out what happened and, and he has to assess the, the damage. And, they, and then Burlington Northern has to learn from those train wrecks so that they can make changes in the industry-wide. You know, it's incredible. We had a great time talking about it. But every time I talk with him, I think about, you know, our jobs aren't quite, they're not really that different. You deal with literal train wrecks and I deal with allegorical train wrecks of people's lives. And oftentimes, when I enter into a person's life, I can see there's patterns of why that train went off the rails. You know, that's how it works for my my stepbrother. He goes in, he says, oh, well, the track was broken, or the conductor was asleep or drunk. Uh, The weather was bad. Uh, There's something when I, oh, hey, why? And they try to fix it. The same thing can be true. And I think that's what Paul does here in this passage, is he's trying to let them know there will be evidences that you need to watch out for, or you will turn back from Christ. You will make a wreck of your faith. Here's three. First, a person's faith can be wrecked, and they will turn away from Christ if they listen to the wrong people. That's what Paul's, the Galatians are in, they're listening to the wrong people. Second, a person's faith can be wrecked, and they will turn away from Christ if they treasure something in their heart in this world, more than the kingdom of God, more than Christ. Third, a person's faith can be wrecked and they will turn away from Christ if they avoid suffering for and with Christ. Now, let me quickly unpack what I mean by these. First, a person's faith can be wrecked and they'll turn away from Christ if they listen to the wrong people. The Galatians had clearly started listening to teachers and leaders who were out for selfish ambition and gain. Who are these people to you? Perhaps it's a news agency, a television program, celebrities, family members, peers. Who are you listening to? Who has your ear? Paul's plea, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Friends, we all need people in our lives that tell us the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard, but it's the truth. The truth sets you free. The point is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Surround yourself with people who will point you to the truth. That's the first warning sign. Second, a person's faith can be wrecked and they will turn away from Christ if they treasure something in this world in their heart more than Christ. As I mentioned before, Keller said, idolatry is taking a good thing, making it ultimate. What is this for you? Perhaps it's financial security. Perhaps it's your physical health. Perhaps it's well-behaved kids. Perhaps it's straight A's. Perhaps it's winning the ball game. What is it? What is it that you treasure? If you don't have a copy of this, please get it. I have five in my office. I will gladly give you one, and then I'll restock myself next week. I keep seven of them in my desk because I give it away like it's my job because it is my job. Okay. This is a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it takes all the major stories of the Bible and it shows the Christ-centered application to them. This is what Sally Lloyd-Jones said about the treasure of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus said, coming home to God is as wonderful as, as finding a treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might have, even have to give up everything you own to get it. But being where God is, being in his kingdom, that is more important than anything else in all the world. It's worth anything you have to give up because God is the real treasure. So get a copy of that. But that's what, he, that's what Paul is saying. There's a treasure that is Christ and he is worth selling everything you have to stay underneath the riches of that treasure. Treasure Christ in your heart. It's a second warning. The final warning that I see here in this passage is a person's faith can be wrecked and they will turn away from Christ if they avoid suffering for and with Christ. Here's what I mean by this. I mean suffering in all its forms. I do mean persecution, like my story. Having people ridicule you and ridicule you and marginalize you for your faith is a very real form of suffering. But if you try to avoid this, if you try to people please, if you try to negotiate, you could be in danger of turning back from Christ. The world is not getting more Christ-centered. The world is getting less Christ-oriented. And so if you're gonna stand for Christ, you will be persecuted for him. The second suffering, though, is just that suffering that we all go through, that personal illness, having intense physical pain or suffering, losing a loved one, getting a bad diagnosis about your body, having chronic pain, whether it's physical, emotional, or mental. These are sufferings. Friend, if you find yourself suffering, don't come out from Christ. Suffer in him. He understands. He has been through suffering. In fact, the scriptures say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. You can suffer in Christ. Don't come out from Christ to suffer. Stay in him. And then discipleship itself is sort of a form of suffering, right? The, the root word for discipleship is discipline. And that's never good, right? I get disciplined by my parents or by the Lord, and it feels hard. But if we think about discipline as training, or as Paul says, as Christ being formed in you, it takes on a whole different meaning. There's a, a in, in the North Georgia mountains, in between kind of the North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia border, there's a, a place where the Cherokee Indians have a, a, a casino and a reservation. But there's all these like really cool uh, Native American art booths. And one of them that's so fascinating is this one place, and you can find a lot of them, where they take these you know, tree stumps, big, large tree stumps, and they carve out of them these realistic-looking horses. And the horses have flowing manes and teeth and flaring nostrils, and they look like, like real-life horses. Well, I heard a story of a guy who got out of the car one day. He went up to one of these artists, and he said, hey, man, how do you guys do this? How do you take this big chunk of wood and you make it into this lifelike horse? And the simple guy said, well, I take my knife and I cut out everything that ain't horse. <laughs> it's like, well, I take that block of wood and I cut out everything that ain't horse. Man, that is such a picture of what Christ does with us. I take Will, a block of wood, and I cut out everything from him that's not Christ. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. But man, He's making me into his likeness. Don't come out from that. Don't think you're going to form and shape yourself in anything glorious. Stay under the knife 
of his grace that will shape and structure you. So I thought about how do we take this idea of not retreating, not going back, and we come to the table. How do we do that? This is great. This is so, this is so enlightening. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospel passages, they all three write about the communion table. Do you know that the apostle John does not? He doesn't tell us about the Lord's Supper. He tells us in John 13 through 17 about the discourse of what Jesus taught that night, the vine, heaven, the Holy Spirit, uh, the prayer, but he doesn't talk about communion. And, And scholars for years have wrestled, why didn't John do that? And most scholars land that Jesus did, that John talked about the concept of communion and Jesus being the bread of life in John 6, right at the tail end of him feeding the 5,000. And so John tells the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they're amazed that he fed all these people with two fish and five loaves. And they keep coming back to Jesus. Like, man, that was incredible, man. It was great. You fed us all and you did it with all this little thing. It was great. And Jesus says, you guys keep coming back to me because you had your stomachs filled. Yeah, hunger was abated, but also you're still living with these elementary principles and you think that's what I came to do. And he turns the script on him. He says, I'm the bread of life. Any man that eats me will never go hungry. And then people start going, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. (laughs) The miracles, they were cool. Getting some bread, that was awesome. The thought that you might overthrow Rome, I'm in eat you, follow you, kind of not in that. And they start, and and John says, people were leaving left and right. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you guys want to leave too? And this is what Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We can't, there's nowhere else for us to go, Jesus. You are the bread of life. I mean, Peter had no idea what that would cost him in in a few years, right? Friends, don't turn back. Listen to Jesus. This table reminds us to not turn back. He has the words of eternal life. He is the treasure we're selling everything for. He suffered on the cross for you so that you can suffer in this life trusting in him. And we're this morning, for the first time in 15 months, going to come forward. I praise God that we get that symbolism. I want you to think about you're coming forward so that you won't ever go back. Do you hear me? Come forward today. Take the communion from your Savior and don't ever go back. Don't turn away. Some of you today are thinking about throwing in the towel with Jesus. Don't do it. Come forward. Come eat, feast on your Savior. He loves you. He's shaping you. He'll walk with you for whatever suffering you have. And he will give you the treasure of the kingdom. Don't turn back. Stay in him. Amen? All right, let's pray. So, Lord, as we do come to this moment, I do pray that our symbolic act of coming forward to take this meal together would in fact be the reality of our heart, that we are going forward. We are not giving ground to the devil, to the world, to my own flesh, but we are going forward to Christ. 
Lord, some of us will walk forward today with a weak faith, but you said you would not snuff them out. You would not break the bruised reed. And I pray this morning that all of us, though weak in our knees, though weak in our hands, would come forward in faith. Lord, I pray that this moment would be that time in our lives where we won't ever go back. That today we'll come to Christ. Next week we'll come to Christ. Next week we'll come to Christ. And on and on until that day that we are fully formed in you. Help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.